You're listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we catch up with the crash test dummies. Brad Roberts and Ellen Reed join me to talk about touring again, a new song out on March 10th called Sacred Alphabet. And we look back at three decades since the Winnipeg-born band burst onto the music scene. We take a peek at the phenomenon of rejuveniles, a new breed of adult identified by a commitment to remain playful, energetic, and fun in the face of adult responsibilities. Is it Peter Pan syndrome? We ask, get ready to see alcohol prices rise this spring. A 6.3% federal tax increase on beer, wine, and spirits is scheduled for April the 1st, and it comes at a time when new stats show Canadians are drinking a lot less booze these days. But first, the Prime Minister's top security advisor was questioned by MPs on Parliament Hill today about allegations of foreign interference in our elections, particularly China. A lot of questions are based on reporting by Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper, and he joins me to talk about what we learned today. It was a busy day in Ottawa today. You know, we've been talking a lot about China and election interference this week for a reason, two main reasons, really. First of all, I think it's fundamentally important that we pay attention to this one because it's about our democracy and what, what matters more than that. And I think this is the one. I was in Ottawa when the sponsorship scandal happened and when the Gomery inquiry happened. I get the sense this is the one that the Trudeau government's going to have a very, very hard time brushing aside. They're already having a very hard time brushing it aside. So I think it matters in many more ways than one. If you haven't been following closely, the Liberal government's come under a lot of pressure in recent weeks to explain what this country is doing about accusations of Chinese meddling in the last two federal elections, following leaks to the media from security sources. Uh, Global News, of course, with Sam Cooper, the Global Mail, have revealed detailed reports showing the scope of China's alleged efforts to influence our elections, specifically 2019 and 2021. Well, today, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee questioned a list of federal witnesses, starting with uh, the Prime Minister's National Security and Intelligence Advisor, Jody Thomas, as well as the Deputy Minister of Public Safety, Sean Tupper, about this. Thomas testified that the Prime Minister had been provided multiple intelligence briefs regarding Beijing's rule in interference in 2019 and 2021 in our elections. She also, though, and this is becoming a pretty common refrain, took aim at those providing the information to journalists being used in the stories on election interference. The unlawful sharing of information and the inappropriate sharing of information, I believe, um, jeopardizes our national security. It jeopardizes institutions and it puts people at risk, both employees and subjects of investigations at unnecessary risk. uh, And it's very concerning. I'm not going to speculate on the motivations. That is the Prime Minister's National Security and Intelligence Advisor, Jody Thomas. It came on the very same day. There have been so many calls now for a public inquiry into this. The NDP and the Bloc Québécois, both formally during that committee hearing, demanded that an inquiry take place. Here's Peter Julian, the NDP MP. That the committee report to the House that it calls on the Government of Canada to launch a national public inquiry into allegations of foreign interference in Canada's democratic system, including but not limited to allegations of interference in general elections by foreign governments. Now, the Prime Minister continues to reject those calls, even though now they're coming from absolutely everywhere, saying he thinks there's already an independent mechanism or mechanisms in place to figure out what kind of foreign foreign interference is happening. Uh, 
we're at a point now where you better call the inquiry because if you don't call it, people are going to wonder what you're hiding, right? At this point, I think. Now, the inquiry may not give us all the answers we're looking for, but at the same time, to continuously avoid calling one and then kind of not providing a lot of answers about what's going on, I just think this is one where the Liberal government has not covered itself in a lot of glory. A lot of what was fueling today's questions and the committee's work in general comes from a series of reports from my global news colleague, Sam Cooper, including allegations of a vast campaign of interference by China targeting our elections and politicians. And joining me now is Sam Cooper. He's an investigative reporter, of course, with Global News. He's also the author of Willful Blindness, how a criminal network of narcos, tycoons and Chinese Communist Party agents infiltrated the West. Sam, as always, thank you. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ben. Just your first impressions. I mean, your work came up uh, frequently today in in the questioning. Did you find out anything you didn't know from the witnesses that were there answering questions, often based on things that you had uh, written about? I didn't find out anything new, but what I observed was, uh, you're right, uh, some of the parliamentarians asked direct questions of Prime Minister Trudeau's national security advisor, Jody Thomas, asking her to confirm or deny some of the assertions from our global news reports that that broke this uh, big Chinese election interference story. And in general, uh, again, Ms. Thomas, as probably uh, she was mandated to do, uh, said that there, for national security information reasons, she could not answer certain questions. But she did confirm in her opening, opening statement that, uh, as we reported back in November, Chinese foreign interference is the greatest threat to uh, Canadian democracy and elections, essentially, she said. She said, of course, as we also reported, Russia is also involved. Interference is getting more sophisticated and pervasive in Canada, confirming everything we have reported and informed Canadians of generally. But when she was asked details such as, can you uh, discuss what officials were, were briefed, as Global News has reported in September 2019, about a candidate for the Liberal Party who was believed by CSIS, we reported, to be involved in Chinese foreign interference. She told the committee she would get back with an answer, but uh, she wasn't confirming or denying uh, any of these you know, very sharp allegations. I will say that there's been a lot of, uh, I would say, fairly, I believe, that there's been some evasive answers from our prime minister on whether he himself was briefed on intelligence from January 22 onward regarding these Chinese interference schemes in 2019 and 2021. He, I don't think, has ever answered that directly, but Ms. Thomas, his advisor, confirmed he and some cabinet ministers have been briefed multiple times on election interference, as we reported. Yeah, I was I was interested in that because she didn't go into specifics of how they would have been briefed or how frequently or what they would have seen. But she certainly seemed to confirm that that, you know, right up to the top, people were aware that this was happening. Very much so. As I'm expecting, we'll see as these hearings continue. Uh, she was reluctant to say Chinese election interference, which, as we've reported, is the major issue here. And other media have certainly picked up on that and tapped into sensitive documents again and again. She was asked if Canadian intelligence people are, are putting their jobs on the line and, and leaking these documents to journalists and it's suggesting that this government hasn't taken action on these various serious threats that, as we have reported at Global News, involve at least one of their own members sitting in parliament. 
why would these Canadian intelligence officers do this? And and she kept re- re- referring back that, well, we take it very seriously that this information, it's against the law to, to provide that to journalists. So I do believe that it, it looks like the government is hewing to a line on that point. Yeah, I, I think what they're, they're happy to shoot the messenger on this one. Uh, and, and at the same time, claim that they are fully aware and fully concerned about the allegations that your reporting has included, right? They just didn't want it to be leaked to you uh, by by sources. You know, it's it's funny hearing them discuss one of the big items that came up today was, should voters have been warned? Should people, have, should we have been warned that these interference schemes were going on if clearly CSIS was warning about them and they were aware of them? And they talked about sort of the threshold and why, when, and it struck me that the system worked perfectly. It's the system that's the problem. It doesn't work. It worked as it should have. I I would agree with you, Ben, and I, I will tell you that a number of my sources would look. We're, we're they were asked about this panel of I believe it's about five officials in the government that are asked to report back if the election integrity, that is the broad election, if the results can be trusted. And uh, as you are indicating, we're not talking about you know over a hundred seats here. We're talking about about you know a dozen seats in Toronto, a dozen seats in Vancouver, and in other cities, I would add. My my estimations are higher than some very, very vaunted experts in Canada, but we're talking not over 40 seats in 2021. That's a large number still. <laughs> that, that This is, comes from sources, but everyone agrees, I believe, that the, the overall integrity of the election was not swung against the Conservatives, even though there's a lot of evidence that they were targeted and the Liberal Party was favoured in Chinese communist operations. So to boil it down, you're right. Our system is looking at a broad result, while my expert sources would say China is doing targeted operations in several cities in Canada. And slowly but surely, my sources believe they are chipping off seats. I don't think it's it's just reasonable to say that Canada's elections are safe if election by election it appears to be getting worse and we don't have the right threshold or investigative I believe uh, methods in place to to deter these operations so Canadians should be worried I believe well, the fact that no one's ever been, I don't think there's ever been a successful case, right? I mean, it's kind of says all you need to know. At the same time, you pointed out that they oftentimes they target the nomination, it's the nomination process that's being targeted, not the vote. So it just feels like our entire system isn't quite built to detect and, and deter this kind of activity. That's a, exactly right. That was a big reveal in our, our report from uh, several days ago. I cited, again, sensitive documents that said election interference starts at the nomination level. There are, as you know, ridings that are basically considered safe seats for the big three parties. Uh, We'll just talk about the Liberals, Conservatives, and NDP. And so if a foreign power can control both community volunteer, community fundraising networks, media networks, and they they, they get their their favored candidate, let's just talk about China here, mm-hmm. Beijing's favored candidate in a writing that, let's say, always goes liberal, the documents from CSIS say that is like putting someone in parliament. And as I've said uh, in interviews since I broke that story, my sources would say that Prime Minister Trudeau and his his uh, ministers aren't addressing that fact, that real election fixing starts internally in parties at the writing level. 
Sam Cooper, Global News investigative reporter, is with us uh, this half hour. We're talking about uh, committee hearings today into election interference, specifically uh, by China, not only, but uh, other countries as well. But really, the focus was on China, given all the reporting of late, including Sam's. Uh, I was interested that uh, that this there was a little bit of news in there from Sean Tupper, who's the Deputy Minister of Public Safety today, when he was questioned about uh, about how the government reaches out to diaspora communities about issues such as election interference. And quite unprompted, he brought up the police stations, which was the story that you reported on as well, uh, about China having set up these sort of clandestine police stations in different cities, essentially to put pressure on the diaspora and some of their relatives, even people back home. And we got an update. It seems like uh, they've taken action, at least according to the Deputy Minister of Public Safety. That's right. Uh, He testified that, uh, I believe he said, five suspected police stations in Vancouver and Toronto have been disrupted. And you're right, as we've reported, you know, in the past months, RCMP's uh, national security units have gone overt in their investigations. And in of, of these stations, which they may be, you know, a, a mansion on, on the Richmond-Vancouver border, they may be a community uh, store, they may be in an industrial park. But what the allegations are is that China covertly is bringing in security officials and uh, conducting interviews, bringing people in, in these stations. And so I do think we can call that a win, that the media attention over the past months, I do believe, has uh, has caused the RCMP to, to take plans that they've been uh, working on for at least a year, I'm told, of, you know, doing sweeping investigations into these Chinese Communist Party operations, but they needed the political will to actually really engage And that has happened uh, in the past few months. So I'll say this, you know, uh, disrupting five stations, like I said, it's a win. But I I want people to be very clear about this. It's really the networks of community leaders involved in these stations that, of course, are still very active. So we could say that a station is shut down now that the RCMP are outside, you know, almost every day canvassing neighborhoods. But those networks are still very present. And to our knowledge, uh, there have been no charges. But uh, on the other hand, I can tell you that my sources with awareness say some very key people, suspects, have been interviewed. And these would be the very same people that my investigations and sourcing say are involved in these political fundraising networks that are involved in allegedly uh, funding some of our candidates that either knowingly or unknowingly are being uh, targeted by the Chinese Communist Party. And, and I don't doubt they also link back to some of the work you were doing in willful blindness, right? It's not a huge world out there of people who are active in these sorts of spaces. Ben, uh, I, I'm going to give you credit there. You hit the nail on the head. Uh, we, uh, After I broke a story about a, a police station uh, suspect, I heard back from a, a community source that I won't name the name, but they, they pointed to a very key character in my book and said, you missed something. This person is involved and my family is suffering for it. So I'll tell you this. Look, I know news is breaking to BC today about a money laundering case falling apart. Mm-hmm. And the people involved in casino money laundering are involved in police stations, are involved in political subversion funding operations in Canada. I, I, can, I can say that because I have sources in police, intelligence, and in the community, the people that are targeted that, that assert this 
And uh, I believe that evidence will come out if we do have a public inquiry into this election interference. Which was my last question. The public inquiry up again today, the NDP, the bloc, both calling for one now. Uh, the Liberals still resisting it. It feels like it's inevitable. But Jody Thomas, uh, the National Security Advisor, was essentially saying, listen, you're not going to learn anything in that inquiry that you can't learn here. Did you buy that? I didn't buy that. <laughs> the, the, the NDP motion uh, from a BC member, Peter Julian, said that a public inquiry would have the powers to uh, call for national security documents. And Ben, you know, I some documents have been filed in these committee hearings, but they were so highly redacted that uh, most of them have no value. I believe in a public hearing we have a panel of lawyers or justices, we can't guarantee that they'll get to the bottom of it. But I believe that they'll be given the mandate to examine documents fully. And that would be certainly a, a much more transparency than the hearing that Ms. Uh, Ms. Thomas was uh, testifying in today. I, I strongly believe that. Well, Sam, we look forward to your next reports. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. They burst out at the Canadian music scene from Winnipeg, sounding like very little you'd probably ever heard before. Uh, last year marked 30 years since the Crash Test Dummies released their debut, The Ghosts That Haunt Me, a big hit in Canada and well beyond, including that song, the Superman song, of course. And um, they were just discovering their musical powers. In 1993, a few years later, God Shuffled His Feet would sell millions of copies, five million, I think and give them a top five hit in the U.S. Uh, perhaps the strangest named big hit. Mm -hmm. I think I got that right. And it was all paced by the distinctive baritone of lead singer Brad Roberts, the backing vocals of Ellen Reed. Uh, well, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. Uh, there have been more records, more hits, including a remake of Ecstasy's Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead for the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. That was a big one. There were some lean years as well, and after a long hiatus and some personnel changes over time they've hit the road for the first time in a long time they did that back in 2018 touring again and now they're back on the road there's also a new song due out on march the 10th called sacred alphabet here's a little taste of that one They're on tour in the U.S. with a stop in at Atlanta. A few nights ago, they were in Nashville. Uh, they were in Atlanta, sorry, last night. They're in Nashville, Tennessee tonight. And a little earlier today, I managed to sit down with Brad Roberts and Ellen Reed of the Crash Test Dummies to catch up uh, with them and find out what's going on. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. You've, you've, you've used many different styles over the years. Uh, people who might just know some of the hits, how do you keep the crowd happy? You still play the new stuff and play all the things you want to play? You know, what? Uh, when we first started touring, we weighted the set very heavily towards God Shoveled His Feet, and we played every single song on the record. Now we're doing some of the same cities over again a year later, so we had to change up the set list. I was a little reluctant because I thought, you know, how many people are going to know these other songs from our other records? Because those records didn't really sell as well as God Shoveled His Feet. But so far, we've been getting really positive responses to our new for to the other material. I can't really call it new because it was 10 or 12 years since we recorded any of those songs, with the exception of a new song that we have, which I guess we'll get to. Yeah, we'll get to. Yeah, that's we'll talk about that because it's an interesting, the production of it is interesting too. When you look at, at, at 
sort of, I think, I don't know whether Canadians fully understand what a parallel, I wouldn't call it a parallel career, but how much success you had in the U.S. with different stuff, it seemed. And maybe that was because of the the power of, of alt-rock radio and college radio in America is a little bit different than here at home. But you really have sort of a, a, a different kind, it seems like a, a very devoted fan base in the U.S. Yeah, we do. Our first record came out in Canada and did you know, like five times platinum or some damn thing. It did extremely well, but it only had a kind of a culty following in America. However, the following in America that that it did have was very devoted. And that record, of course, when, when we put out God Shovel His Feet, our next record, that first record became revisited by some of our fans. We kind of won twice over. And the song that we had put out as a single on our first record ended up as the B-side on the single for our second record. So it ended up getting some play as well. And as a result, we got a good head start with the U.S. Brad, I was seeing an inter- interesting interview. There's this great Dutch series that goes over individual records. And it was I was happy to see that mm, was there. It was it was it was great because they do all kinds of, you know, they do all kinds of songs from over the years. And uh, there was an interesting line that you put in about how you found your voice, because I think we grew up, we're about the same age. You know, I grew up listening to David Coverdale and all those guys too. you know, sort of the, the screamers, the, the heavy rock guys. And uh, it took you a while to figure out that you didn't have to sing like that. Tell me a bit about that. I figured my voice was suited for Irish traditionals and maybe church. But that was about it because, you know, it, it's so deep. And as you mentioned, in the early 90s, we were coming in out, of, out of an era of screamer metal. I was trying to get other people to sing my songs for a while, and they just weren't doing it the way I heard it in my head. So I just became the singer de facto. I'm lucky enough to have the support of Ellen Reed, who could always sing better than me to begin with. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, well, you you sound great together. I think that's one of the one of the beauties of the band is that is that it's the combination of the voices that works so well. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Ellen, I mean, you 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 were at uh, you were from Selkirk, right? And you, you were in Winnipeg at the time, and I think you saw the band. What was your first impressions of what was to become your band and the Crash Test Dummies? I was actually in the band before it was even Crash Test Dummies. We right. were playing at the Blue Note. Um, I, I was really just brought on because Brad needed a keyboard player and, and a mutual friend said, well, I know someone. And I just really played for a few songs and it, it just built from there. But I never had any kind of idea that it would become my career. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. What's it like to look back on it now? I mean, time flies, right? Time really does fly. And you look back at bands that were popular in the, that have been popular for many, many years. I mean, you're on, this was, you celebrated uh, the 30th anniversary of the release of that, uh, of that first big album just recently. Uh, yeah, I think uh, we recorded it and re- I think we released God Shuffled to Speed in 93. Uh, so it'll be, it'll be 30 years this year for that one. Ghosts That Haunt Me is, is over 30 years old, which is weird because I'm only 37. So I'm, I'm not <laughs> I'm not sure how the math works on that. I've been interested for the two of you. You know, I, I was noticing that some producers and so on have taken your songs, remixed them, given them new beats and so on. You've always been pretty open to that, right? I mean, you've, you, you've toyed around with a lot of different sounds over the years. Perhaps people remember those earlier tracks and that style the most, but there's been a lot of different genres since. I've always been interested in writing in a variety of genres because I just don't want to make the same record over and over again. So our first album was very folky, and our second record was much more uh, alternative. <laughs> it sort of it, it kind of defied it kind of defied description until someone decided it was alt, right? I mean that was kind of the strange thing about it. Yeah, but it's got um, 
the sound evolved quite a bit from from the first to the second record. It, we went from being very folky to um, more rock and and lots of lush board pads and synthesizers and and, and then after that we put out kind of a rock record, a worm's lay, and then we put out kind of a funk record, even though funk was more of a 70s phenomenon. And then a country record, then a live record, and then a Christmas record, and then a record wow. made with toy instruments. So it's been all over the map. I was interviewing uh, Ivan with Men Without Hats a while back. He's at where I am here in Victoria these days. And we were talking about just having a huge hit and the kind of pressure that puts on you. Because, of course, back in the 80s, his record company basically said, listen, just write Safety Dance 100 times and we'll be happy. And I suspect you had some of the same pressure when it came to some of your your big hits uh, in the the 90s. Well, you know, it's funny. We We weren't subjected to so much pressure because I don't think the record label had any faith in us to, to begin with. Like, I don't think they, I know BMG Canada did not expect Superman song to do nearly as well as it did. That was a ballad and it was kind of unheard of to release a ballad as your first single. It was a confused notion putting that song out, although it ended up being a smash hit. And, and I was very grateful for that. And then on our second record, you know, we had, we had got, our hit out of our first record just by kind of doing what we did and not plugging into a formula that was obvious. We were more or less given free reign to do what we wanted to do. And um, then we had a bunch of luck with the second single on the second record as well, or the first single on the second record as well. Brad Roberts and Ellen Reed are with us from Nashville, members of Crash Test Dummies. We're talking about uh, touring again. They are on tour right now for a second time in, in as many years. They're in uh, Nashville tonight. And uh, the release of a new song coming up on Friday, March the 10th, called Sacred Alphabet. Again, it's what it's, you know, as always, it's unex- it's about, it's slow. It's, it's very much a hymn. It's a really interesting track. Uh, tell me a bit about how it came together. Well, I wrote the lyrics first, and that took me quite a long time because they're they're a little complicated, you know, as it goes. They're not, you know, they're... Concise, concise, though. Concise and complicated. I mean, it's it's a pretty tightly packed uh, track. Oh, thank you. It took me quite a while to write the music. I started studying, you know, when the pandemic started, everybody kind of had to remake their lives. And I started studying composition and counterpoint. Counterpoint is a method of writing melodies that's about 400 years old. And it's... Um, wildly fascinating to me at least (laughs) and um that really influenced the uh construction of sacred alphabet in a big way scott harding produced it Uh, i remember him from his hip-hop days i mean he was one of the most influential kind of uh people around production and engineering in uh in the u.s and in new york in the early 90s and ellen he produced your solo album right he did He, he produced uh seven of or six of the ten tracks yeah so what was it like to bring him in? Because he would bring, I know he's done a lot of different kind of work, but he brings a different sensibility to your sound as well. Um, yeah, I mean, he had a lot of really good ideas and, and he, he had a lot of good connections of, of musicians that would have been appropriate for, for what I was doing. And I, I think, you know, he and Brad are good buddies from way back. So I was lucky enough to be able to ride on the coattails of that of that connection. But yeah, working with him was great. He's, he's a lovely, lovely guy, a multiple talented guy. Yes, and of course, he also produced, as well as some of our older records, he produced Sacred Alphabet, but he did a great job. 
What does he? What does he? I, I mean, I was thinking back, maybe more to the early '90s when your first records were out, and he was doing uh, stuff with like Black Sheep and and sort of the more the more progressive hip hop bands that are New York. Very different sounds at the time. Uh, how was it for that? Uh, those two that those sensibilities to merge together a few decades later. Well, you know, Scott is um, an extremely eclectic musical mind. Although it's true that he did work with some some hip hop artists in the early '90s. He's always worked on a wide variety of different styles of music. Desky Martin Wood, jazz players. He's done pop music. He comes with a pedigree that is fairly well established to begin with. And he actually went to music school, so he had to take counterpoint himself. He would understand. Yeah, he would understand. Yeah. Yes. So it really worked out nicely that way. Any plans to tour in Canada soon? I see a lot of the dates so far. This is just a spring uh, concert tour you're doing uh, all across, I mean, in many parts of the U.S., but uh, when do you plan to come back? Yeah, we're we're working on dates for, for later in 2023, but they haven't been written in stone yet, so our lips are sealed. But the, <laughs> they, they are pretty confident that we're going to be back in 2023, later on in the year. And is Sacred Alphabet the prelude to uh, to a new album? I suppose that would be the obvious question. I suspect it must be. <laughs> well, it's the prelude to another song, which I wrote as a companion piece, but haven't recorded yet. I don't know if it's the prelude to another record or not. Records are pretty expensive to make, and it's hard to make the money back. <laughs> <laughs> That's changed a lot, hasn't it, since the year? I mean, it was just automatic back in the day that if you recorded a track, an album would follow. But I guess the the, the whole way music is consumed and so on, it, it, you don't really have to anymore. Yeah, I felt kind of guilty just putting out one song, to tell you the truth, but it was my first time doing it. And uh, I just, I did it because everybody else is doing it. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Uh, back to the touring. I mean, it's uh, I, it's a grind, right? A, a pleasant one, no doubt. But is it been? Um, has it been everything you hoped it would be so far? Yes, it has been because the crowds have been great, and that's always the main thing. Most of the time, when you're on the road, you're either sitting in a van or sitting in backstage all afternoon, waiting for the show to start, or sitting in a hotel room, but once a day for that hour and a half you do get to go have enormous fun so it makes it all worthwhile i was asking someone the other day i was saying that that i would be speaking to you this week and someone was reflecting on that um that mm, maybe the most butchered karaoke song of all time (laughs) Uh, yeah i imagine there's only a select few that can hit those notes uh, if it's a consolation to the rest of the world, though, I can't sing karaoke worth a damn for anybody else. <laughs> Is that oh, really? You could only do, do you walk in or you could only do Crash Test Dummies tracks? Is that how it works? Pretty much, yeah. That and, and, and Leonard Cohen and Nick Cave. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. There was, there was, um, I didn't want to draw parallels, but the new song has a, a sacred alphabet, has a bit of a Leonard Cohen vibe to it. And that, I don't want to, you know, you never want to compare everything in life. You know, it's, it is a very different kind of song, but you get a bit of a, a bit of a Leonard Cohen vibe on it. Sort of, you know, I've seen a lot. Here's life, <laughs> what you've been doing since the get go. But well, I take that as a big compliment. And I think one of the things that Leonard Cohen has got going for him is that, you know, there's, there's sex and there's the sacred, and he's always crossing the line between the two, which I I find in, an intriguing way of going about things. And I kind of do that myself. 
and Ellen, you sing on it too. I, I've uh, you added to it as well because it's 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 a very it's slow. It's quite again. It's quite it's it's very hymn like, and then it hits its crescendo near. They will play a little bit of it as we uh, as we leave the interview. But uh, how did you like working on that track? It's different, isn't it, from a lot of what you've done? Certainly your solo stuff, Ellen. Um, it's a very sort of spare piece. And when Brad sent us the demo that he'd recorded of the song, all of us said, just leave it. Just you and a piano, because the track really just kind of shimmers. It doesn't really need a lot, but um, Brad was determined to get us all in there taking part, which was very kind of him. So, you know, I, I love doing backups. Like, that's what I, I love to do. So singing my parts on, on that track were, was nothing but fun for me. March the 10th, the rest of us will get to hear the whole thing. Any last words to your fans here at home? I, I know people are uh, excited to see you, get excited for the new stuff, just on how you're doing and uh, happy that happy that you're still playing, I think. Yeah, I, my message to them is come to our shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad Roberts, Ella Reed, uh, good luck tonight in Nashville. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your interview. Thank you. I was reading, we were reading, uh, this week that a 50-year-old named Jeff Reitz from California uh, broke the Guinness World Record. He'd been to Disneyland consecutively for 2,995 days, 2,995 days, earning him the record title for the most consecutive visits uh, Guinness World Records announced. Um, he's from Huntington Beach, California. He's an annual pass holder, quite quite obviously. Imagine the cost of that if you went every day and paid full price. Um, and he'd been to the theme park every day since 2012 for a grand total of eight years, three months, and 13 days. He had hoped to reach 3,000. He's like Lou Gehrig. He'd hoped to reach 3,000 consecutive days, but the COVID-19 pandemic stopped his Disneyland streak on March 14th, 2020. So why did he do it? He was asked. Uh, he really just enjoyed. He enjoyed going. He wasn't a big fan of the rides. He just liked to see the people, take pictures, look around. You know, it was more of a pastime thing. But it is part of a growing trend of adults um, who are hanging on to what would have once been thought of as childhood pastimes or childhood pursuits. Imagine Disney World in Florida is the world's top vacation destination, the world's top uh, vacation destination. And it's all part of a book called, uh, it's all looked at, this new phenomenon of a book called Rejuvenile. Uh, essentially, what it looks at is it says it's hard to imagine that adults in previous eras, eras, adults, would so unashamedly indulge in their inner child, right? I mean, there was a time, and it hasn't been for long. It used to be, you know, not that long ago when and we talked about this last week, where childhood wasn't seen as being as big a deal. Um, as it is now, that we didn't sort of separate childhood as being this sanctuary from all the other things in the world right up to the time, you know, you're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and so on. Uh, but, you know, these days, these aren't the adults of 20 years ago. They constitute a new breed of adult identified by a commitment to remaining playful, energetic, and fun in the face of all those responsibilities we associate. There's lots of theories about it out there. One of them is that so much of what we used to associate with adulthood, the steps you know, getting married, having kids, buying a home, you know, your first car, all those things, all of it's happening so much later uh, than they than it used to, that uh, people are simply putting it off and indulging in some of the things they like to do when they were young. It doesn't explain why people my age, Gen Xers, you know, still collect Star Wars figurines and all the things that we liked when we were young. There is sort of a combination of nostalgia there, as well as a combination sort of nostalgia, uh, a want to hang on to youth, uh, but also 
you know, this idea that um, that it's fine. There's nothing wrong with playing video games when you're 40. If you played them when you're 14, there's nothing wrong with um, with you know all the things that we used to consider to be you know child play. You know the Peter Pan stuff, right? We get to do it. We, we get to do it until we're until we're older now. Uh, Christopher Doxon is the author of the book called Rejuvenile, and uh, he's looked into this. He talks about it at length as both a good and bad thing. It's not necessarily uh, just that we celebrate youth, but also that in many ways uh, it's not as taboo as it used to be, and there's good and bad to both of it. Um, and we're just hanging on for Christopher Knoxon now. He'll join us in just a second. But it's really an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Because you think back, even to when I was young, there seemed to be a time when you really did take that step from being, you know, there was, there was times to play with toys and there was times to do adult things. Part of it was that so much of what we considered to be maybe, uh, you know, youthful pursuits like watching TV or playing records, they kind of built those into the furniture of the living room, right? Like my grandparents, their TV and their turntable look like pieces of furniture certainly ours don't you know nowadays video game consoles don't look like furniture they look like video game consoles christopher Oxen is with us now uh christopher thank you so much thanks for having me rejuvenile it's a cool word it's a cool term what made you what got you interested in it well i was a young father and i had little kids and i was a journalist and i was sort of paying attention to the way that i was playing with my kids i mean that was initially the seed of the idea was i was like spending my entire day watching spongebob square pants and teletubbies and rolling around on the carpet you know playing with thomas the tank engine uh trains and uh, I was in this kind of world of childhood, uh, you know, wonder and temper tantrums. And I was sort of playing along with them in a way that I know that my parents didn't play along with me. And I looked around and I saw that my peers were similarly and not just the parents were sort of engaging in kind of a childlike and childish world in a way that seemed uh, kind of novel. And you know, I started connecting it to things like uh, how long people stay at home, um, how long they wait until they have kids, the sort of markers of uh, capital A adulthood. And I realized that something, you know, pretty dramatic was going on, not just with sort of media and entertainment, but in sort of sociology and kind of the way that we live and the whole meaning of maturity and what it means to be a grown up. Yeah, we've certainly, uh, and you mentioned this in your writing, that we've certainly, the taboos about embracing your inner child or doing the things you did when you were young are no longer quite what they used to be. I mean, uh, a lot of it has to do, I think, I'm, I'm Gen X. It has a lot to do with our generation. The first time it struck me, I remember, because I guess we moved out of the home a little bit later, uh, not all of us, but some of us. I remember a friend of mine from university um, was still living at home, and he had, like, NHL sheets. And I thought, wow, that's, wow, that's, yeah. uh, you don't see you don't see those anymore. Um, you, you say it's both... You, you, you've talked about re, the rejuvenile idea as being both good and good. And, and you know, it's not, a, it's not, you're not criticizing it. You're not lionizing it. It's, you fall somewhere in the middle. It's just, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Much to the dismay of my publisher who really wanted me to come out one way or the other. You know, I was a, <laughs> I was a train, I was a journalist. I went to Concordia. I think you did too. And I did too. I, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I approached it as a reporter. I mean, in the end, you know, I am a rejuvenile. Like I, I still really love Star Wars. Like I just devoured Andor, which is the new Star Wars series. Right. Um, you know, 
I went to see Puss in Boots with my 17-year-old son last week, <laughs> and we both had a great time. So, you know, I, I have held on to – I met my now ex-wife playing kickball in an adult league. So, you know, clearly this book and my uh, reporting wasn't just a sort of self-laceration exercise. I wasn't interested in sort of tearing down this, you know. I I talk in the book about a kind of um, common complaint, and you will hear it anytime this topic comes up. um, Legions of folks will come forward to say, you know, this isn't the way that, you know, adults are supposed to behave. And in my day, you know, adults knew when to put away childish things and, um, linking it to sort of the breakdown of civilization. Uh, I don't think it's as, as clear as that. You know, obviously there are people who take this to an extreme. And, you know, there, there are, there are a, a number of examples that you can point to of people who are just uh, never grew up and, you know, need a, 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 a spanking, frankly. <laughs> Um, I don't think that's allowed anymore either. But yeah, yeah, probably not. But I mean, I, I, but in general, I, I feel like as a as an impulse, I think it's I think it's mostly for the good. Um, I think the 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 thing that has changed is what sociologists called age norms, which are you know when I was talking to my son about Puss in Boots, he was like, of course we should see Puss in Boots. It's a good movie, and it is. Um, the, the idea that somehow when you get to a certain age, you have to reject the things that you loved when you were smaller is a sort of antiquated notion. And why, yeah. why can't we like Shakespeare and, you know, Ayn Rand and David Foster Wallace and PBS and Fruit Loops and Disney and, you know, anime and video games. And I think it's more inclusive to, to just keep collecting stuff that you're, that you're interested in. Yeah. I I mean, I think that makes perfect sense just because you turn a certain age doesn't mean grape nuts and masterpiece theater. Right. I mean, it's, it makes, uh, there's, you you might as well watch what you like. What's what I've always found remarkable about it too. I mean, first of all, I think they make a lot of the, those, uh, a lot of the products now are obviously geared towards adults in a way that they weren't when, when we were, when I was growing up. I mean, certainly those initial star Wars figures were pretty awesome, no matter how old you were. But, you know, I feel like a lot of what's marketed now, even the movies, like even, um, the whole Pixar line, all those movies are perfectly watchable. All the Shrek movies, perfectly enjoyable for an adult to watch. I mean, they operate on many levels. Uh, it feels like they're actually being, there's a recognition that there's a wider audience out there than just kids. Yeah, I mean, it's all about capitalism, right? Like, the, there's a term in, in the movie industry called the four quadrants. And it's, you know, young men, young women, older men, older women. They want to hit all four. So the you know the tentpole movies, the Marvel movies, the um, all these franchises are deliberately constructed to appeal to as big an audience as possible. So they have to have that sort of childlike, or you know childish or adolescent uh, appeal built into them, but also operate on a, a more mature level. So I mean, it's, it's in some ways it's sort of crass and a little bit um, manipulative because. The, the the makers of these big, expensive products are just trying to figure out how to get the biggest audience for them. Yeah, I mean, 
when you look, there is the, what what I liked about what you what you had written is that it it is there is sort of a libert, libertarian, like a small l libertarian. It's do do what makes you happy, right? So if if you're in your fifties and you get and you love watching SpongeBob, then watch SpongeBob. Like why not? Why not? If you enjoy it, I mean, um, there's this idea of sort of societal norms sometimes around entertainment that at a certain age you do have to, you know, you can only watch, you know, as you were mentioning, PBS or something along those lines. Uh, or even your taste in music should change. Like after a certain age, you shouldn't be listening to some of that stuff. I felt like the boomers kind of broke that mold a little bit because they kind of, you know, they, they kind of hung on to their their 60s childhood stuff for a very long time. And I think it allowed the rest of us to kind of follow suit. Yeah, I mean, there was a reason they were called the flower children. <laughs> yeah. You know, they were okay. they were, you know, what they were also called the the pig and the python, this giant generation that was working its way through uh the population and and their interests then became the dominant interests uh for the culture. Um and so I I think the boomers had a lot to do with it. And that sort of fetishization of 50s culture, which was their childhood, um became a sort of you know the happy days scenario it's funny too i i think about like the the nostalgia for 50s i think we've gone through like five different waves of it so there's (laughs) like 70s 50s there's 80s 50s there's 90s 50s yeah (laughs) that generation never never goes away it's uh, I i guess it was the cusp of so many things that's why we look back at it whether it was sort of back to the future or you know the stray cats or 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 happy days for that matter has been so much so much of it uh there was a bit i mean there's been a revival of the 80s too which has been interesting because you know you've reached a certain age when they start to to do a bunch of revivals of your of of when you were young right that's so here we are here we are gen X is getting its revival moment now yeah although i think the the more current revival is 90s which is so baffling to me because um you know the teenagers now are all like into 90s hip-hop and 90s fashion and i'm like jeez it's crazy like when when kids are into seinfeld and friends yeah, yeah, and they're wearing they're wearing sort of those uh, those warm up jackets they used to wear back in the nineties. When all that stuff went away, I'm like, I hope it never. I know it'll come back. I hope it never comes yeah. back. Yeah, um, yeah. It's but how about the reaction to it? Because it is a sensitive subject. There are a lot of people have opinions about this juvenile thing, don't they? Yeah, well, I think it sets off um, alarm bells in those who sort of uh, are concerned that society has become. Um, less regimented and less uh, predictable and less civilized, right? You know, uh, I, I think of a sign that I saw as I was driving around Los Angeles that, that said, civilization, a good idea. <laughs> There's a sense that things have just kind of gone off the rails. And when you see adults, you know, going to Disneyland every day for two years or something, it's easy right. to point the finger eight and years. say, that's eight the years. problem. Eight years, eight years. That's eight right. Years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. That, it becomes a sort of scapegoat for the decline of Western civilization to think that adults have sort of lost their capacity to, to think uh, like adults should. Right. Um, but yeah. you know, the reality is that the, some of the most successful, innovative, flexible, creative figures of the 20th century were full on rejuveniles. Um, you know, Steve Jobs, uh, uh, Walt Disney, um, you know, most inventors, most uh, tech people, uh, most artists, uh, you know, Matisse are, are, are deeply connected to their childhood selves. 
Because the truth is, and I mean, this is not woo-woo uh, sort of spiritualism. Children know things that adults don't. They have talents that grown-ups outgrow. And we forget that. Like, we think of kids as being imperfect adults and that you kind of are on this one straight line of getting better and better. And the truth is we lose things as we get older. We lose flexibility. We lose adaptability. We lose the ability to take in new information. And I think that's what's really at root. Because when you look at historically when these outbreaks of rejuveniles have kind of come to the fore, it's always in moments of peak crisis and transition. Um, in the book, I talk about the first big wave of rejuveniles was around 1900 um, with the invention of, you know, adults that were reading comic books and going to carnivals and the world's fairs. And, you know, and, and that was at the Industrial Revolution. And I think the, the wave that I wrote about particularly was around the tech revolution. And I think as things shift, people go back to a part of themselves where they're the most adaptable and they're, they yeah. can change the most. Yeah. When, when everything seems like it's moving just a little too fast, you, you know, put on, put on a good eighties compilation and off you run. Christopher Noxon, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Alcohol prices are going to rise this spring on April the 1st, a 6.3% federal tax increase on beer, wine, and spirits. Uh, it won't show up directly on what you buy, though, it's an excise tax. So it'll go charge the suppliers. It kind of winds its way through the supply chain and ends up um, out of your pocket at some point. It doesn't make a huge difference, but you know this is something that was brought in back in 2017, I believe, and it was a policy adopted by the federal liberal government. Uh, and it changes uh, according to the consumer price index, the rate of inflation. We know how high inflation is, so thus uh, the, the bigger tax increase. We'll talk about a bit about the impact that inflation is having on the alcohol industry, specifically the beer industry, in just a second. It also comes at a time when there's a new StatsCan report out that shows that alcohol sales plummeted across the country um, in 2022. Beer sales reached an all-time low. Wine sales, based on volume, uh, that were had the largest decline since tracking began 19, in, back in 1949. People bought more ciders and coolers and stuff like that, but still, uh, the drop was a big one the biggest drop in more than a decade. That may have something to do with the fact that there was sales were so high during the height of the pandemic, but not quite sure. With more on this, uh, joining, me, joining me now is Jordan St. John. He's a podcast host. The podcast is called The Ontario Craft Beer Guide. You can also see his writings on stjohnswart.ca. Jordan, thank you. Hey, great to be here, Ben. So tell me a bit about about this this tax because I think uh, we've been hearing commercials sort of saying it's a bad idea, but how it works and how much impact is it's going to have is is a matter of debate, isn't it? Well, it, it absolutely is, and you know it's my job as a career writer on this subject to make a really dry subject mildly interesting for an audience. Um, it's uh, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Uh, taxes, uh, you know, there's there's an entire sort of viewpoint out there that tax is a bad thing. Uh, and I think that's what they're relying on here. Any kind of increase in tax is probably going to be viewed negatively by the population. Um, so, you know, the fact that it's tied to the uh, consumer price index means that the tax is going to go up on an annual basis. It's going to go up on a variable rate on an annual basis. It's never going to be the same amount. You know, it's going to depend on the economy and how that's trucking along. Um, in this case, we're going from $34.82 a hectoliter, or about uh, $0.34 cents a liter, to 
37 cents a liter or, you know, $37 a hectoliter. Right. Um, so not a huge, that doesn't make a, a lot of stage. sense. Well, yeah. no, I mean, this is, and the problem is that this is largely impenetrable to the audience uh, okay. that they're telling. This is, a, it is a 6.3% intra uh, increase, but it's not a huge amount of actual money. I mean, if you wanted to think about like the volume that we're talking about, um, 100 liters contains something like 12.21 cases of beer. Right. That's 293 bottles. So this has gone from 11.8 cents per bottle to 12.6 cents per bottle. It's actually less than a penny. You couldn't really pass it along to the consumer if you wanted to because there's no increment of money that's that small, you know? Right. Right. I, I, it's starting to make sense here. And yet we're, we're hearing some, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it, sometimes people hear taxes and then there are stats being thrown around out there about how much of a, how much of a percentage of what you pay for alcohol in this country is taxes. And uh, it's kind of hard to make sense of it all, isn't it? As to what's tax and what's profit and what's just, you know, the basic cost of stuff. Well, that's exactly right. And the other thing that doesn't really get mentioned here is that this is a stepped excise rate. So the only people who are paying the full freight here are brewers who make more than 75,000 hectoliters of beer a year. So it's about 10 breweries in Canada, including Molson, Labatt, Sleeman, Moosehead, probably Minhouse in Alberta, Big Rock, this kind of thing. You know, um, If you're a brewery like the majority of the ones in Canada and you make under 2,000 hectoliters a year, you're actually paying a tenth of that. So you're paying uh, a, a sixth of a tenth of a penny. Right, 0.61%, not 6.1%. Yep. Uh, how is it, I mean, we talked about, you talked, to, you've written about this. How is inflation hitting um, breweries? Because there's been such a huge growth in microbrews and nanobreweries and so on across the country. And yet now we're seeing the price of everything go up, uh, their costs of production and so on. What's been happening? How's that having an impact on, on the business? Well, it has a terrific impact on it. I mean, you've probably come into this with a business plan. The majority of people who own small craft breweries, I'm going to say they're in their second career and they're probably not like astute business people to begin with. So the planning element of this is relatively minor. Um, having a year where the economy collapses, you know, into a recession uh, probably means that the price of shipping, everything that you need is going to go up. The goods themselves are going to go up. Uh, barley had a bad year. Hops have had a terrible year. Um, so all of these commodities that go into actually making the beer are more expensive. And then you've got to deal with electricity. Um, many of the older craft breweries are about year 10 on their lease, so they're probably having to renew that at a higher rate. All these little small details that uh, add price to beer are, are probably far more impactful on the consumer than the actual excise rate. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed, of course, that Beer Canada, we've been running commercials for it as well with Bob and Doug McKenzie. They're very well, they're very, certainly very ear-catching because hearing Bob and Doug back is uh, is interesting. But uh, they're talking about protecting jobs and so on. But as you mentioned, they are the ones, the big breweries are the ones that would get hit hardest by this. So, of course, they're the ones fighting hardest against it. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, just for the sake of interest, I ran the numbers on it and the domestic beer sales for Canada last year, 17,482,000 hectoliters, something like that. If you tax a lot of beer, it it really does seem like a huge amount. I mean, I wouldn't want to have to drink it all. Um, (laughs) Some of it's better than others. Um, But I mean, if you tax that at the maximum rate, it's something like $61 million in excise tax. It's really not a huge amount. Um, I, I think they're claiming something like 200 million overall, but I'm not quite sure where they get that figure from. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I guess what it really boils down to is, you know, if you're a consumer, what's it going to mean to you? And as you pointed out, it might mean a slight, I mean, with ever the cost of everything else going up. And then, of course, every time the price of something goes up, we know from every other business on this planet that you know, the manufacturers sneak in a little extra themselves, right? This is a perfect cover to sneak in a, sneak in a little price hike. And I think you pointed that out as well. Well, I, you know, I, historically, I've been keeping track of this. This debate crops up on an annual basis. So I have all of this material to look back at and, you know, figure where the prices were. And I can tell you that, you know, 2018, I think it was something like 35.50 a case for value brand beer. It's now something like 42.50. It usually goes up in March. So it'll probably be something like 43.50 or $44. So when you think about the fact that there's 24 beers in the case, it's going up like eight tenths of a penny. And we're not seeing a 20 cent increase in the price of the thing. It's gone up, you know, $9 or something over the last, uh, whenever they introduced the excise rate. Still a pretty uh, hefty raise, though. Still a pretty, still pretty hefty if you're, you know, depending how much you buy, I suppose. Really. Well, yeah, it, it is for sure. But I mean, if you were to follow the new CCSA guidelines of two drinks a week at uh, 341 milliliter beers, you'd buy 104 beers a year and you'd be ending paying like a dollar in tax. Lauren St. John is with us. He is a podcast host of the Ontario Craft Beer Guide, it's called. You can find his writing at stjohnswort.ca. We're talking about beer and spirits and wine and and uh, a tax hike that's coming, a federal tax hike that's coming a month from today, 6.1%. You may not notice it right away, but you know the price of everything has been going up of late and alcohol is not exempt. Jordan, I was thinking about this. I'm in Victoria. There's a lot of microbreweries here. It's been kind of a golden age of beer the last decade or so. Now we have inflation coming along, impacting all kinds of stuff, as you mentioned, from the the basic products used to make it to the tins, the cans used to distribute it. Uh, plus, you have inflation. Plus, you have taxes, and it just feels like I'm wondering how much longer this can go on for. Whether or not it's going to bump into some cold hard realities around economics. Well, it absolutely is. I mean, I'm in charge of the map for uh, Ontario. Basically, I I write the Growler magazine, which is um, right. the Ontario Craft Beer. Ma- you've got a, a BC <laughs> version. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it, it's great. It basically keeps track of everything that exists. Um, we've been having breweries opening on a smaller and smaller basis. I remember the last issue, uh, I had to differentiate between three new breweries by stating whether they were in one or two car garages to give you an idea of the size of these newbies. Um, I want to say that uh, probably just one good economic downturn was always going to take the wind out of the industry's sails. And that's kind of an inevitability eventually. Um, There's famously a 1990s shakeout in the American craft beer industry where a lot of the uh, sort of original businesses didn't make it. The fact that we have 1,200 breweries in Canada is, well, they probably make something like 15 to 20,000 beers all told. And I'm not sure how you navigate that if you're a new drinker looking for a six-pack of beer on the weekend. I, I think it might be a little bit challenging. And I think we might be oversupplied a little bit. Um, So the fact that there's going to be an industry correction based upon the economic situation we find ourselves in is not really um, unexpected, I think, is the way to put it. Uh, Certainly, you know, because I know many of these people and like most of them, uh, it's no fun watching it. But believe me when I tell you this was coming for a long time.
Yeah, I, and it comes at a time. I, I wasn't entirely surprised, but you know, just anecdotally during the height of the pandemic, it felt like, you know, the liquor store where it was like Christmas. It was like the you know the the, the weekend, the week before New Year's Eve, every day, and the liquor store was packed. Uh, and now we read that uh, the liquor sales are, or like, was down. Liquor sales were down in 2022 quite significantly. It's hard to tell exactly what's uh, what's going on. I mean, high prices, obviously, maybe. Um, you know, the end of the height of the pandemic had people looking for different things to do after being stuck at home. Uh, that could be that could involve it as well. It's uh, and you mentioned the guidelines, right? Down to two drinks a week now. Well, you've got all of these problems, and at the moment, you know, we're coming out of dry January and dry February, um, and towards St. Patrick's Day, which is typically a bellwether for the industry. Um, it turns out that alcohol sales are largely an occasional thing at this point. Uh, people like to go out you know, during hot weather. You know, they would like to drink some beer. Typically during the uh, Christmas period, alcohol sales really rise dramatically. But I can tell you that, like, on an annual basis, um, last year, January to, uh, sorry, December to January, alcohol sales in Canada dropped something like 45% month to month. Um, so this is a, a real problem. I think the other thing that has happened to some extent is that the younger Canadians who are now, you know, probably five years past the legalization of cannabis, have made me realize that from an economic standpoint, uh, a single edible gummy probably costs about $1.25, and four cans of craft beer would probably be something more like $15. Yeah. So there's some cold, hard math going on there. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not. I mean, I, I even I find, I mean, craft beer where I am is great, but it, it's not cheap. I mean, it's, it's certainly... Uh, not nearly as affordable as beer felt when I was, you know, growing up, when I was in my early 20s, for instance. Oh, I mean, when I was in my early 20s, we had 550 pitchers of Moosehead Dry at the campus pub. Well, exactly, um, exactly. I yeah. don't know if that was a great thing, but, but yeah, well, I had no, the same. I, you, neither, pub neither, yeah. neither the price point nor the beer, really, but uh, I have a nostalgia for it. <laughs> yeah. So, the, you know, these, these are all issues that we're facing. Um, price point is significantly higher than it was on just about everything. And that's going to have a cooling effect. But the other thing is just demography. Um, you know, the boomer generation who make up the largest kind of group of the population in Canada just aren't drinking beer the way they used to in the 1970s. Um, and that means that per capita consumption is going to come down. Yeah, I suspect we're going to see some different... Some shifting of, I mean, you already feel it now. It's hard, almost impossible to find a big brewery beer in a pub in Victoria these days. I imagine we're going to see uh, we're going to see a shift now with the with my dad's generation uh, getting older. That uh, they're not going to, you know, drinking habits have changed, and some of those things we were so used to seeing um, are going to start to. I mean, I, I know they still have a huge share of the market, but you do get the impression that uh, that we're really splintering when it comes to what people like to drink. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's happened, at least in Ontario, is that people have been conditioned to purchase things on an experiential basis, which means that you're not buying a two for a beer, really. I mean, that figure I gave you on like tax per bottle, that's not really as applicable as it used to be. <laughs> okay. I mean, people are buying like a 473 milliliter can, maybe they're buying six different things, and they're just having one beer at a time at home to try it because they like the flavor. And that's great for personal enjoyment and for social responsibility. But in terms of beer sales, it's kind of a loser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Jordan St. John, thank you so much for filling us in on this. I guess we'll be bracing for the tax hike uh, 
come a month from today, but we may not notice it perhaps the way we're being told we're going to notice it. <laughs> So no, okay but at least Rick Moranis is getting work. That's important. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I, I agree with you completely. Nothing, nothing bad when you get to hear Bob and Doug McKenzie again. Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. It's that time of the week when we interview or bring on someone, a journalist who's been covering some interesting stuff in the past uh, little while to talk about a whole variety of things. I should mention we have the Crash Test Dummies coming up in the next hour on the show. We uh, spoke to them a little earlier. They're actually on stage tonight in Nashville. They're on tour, so we'll catch up with the Crash Test Dummies in the next hour. But for the time being, let's talk a bit more about this whole election interference thing because it was a pretty important um, pretty important committee hearing today in Ottawa that featured uh, some top-ranking security people. People who are close to the Prime Minister, including his National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas. Um, and a lot of the pressure's on now about this public inquiry into exactly what's going on. I think people want answers. There was some... Uh, uh, a poll out today from Global saying that a lot of Canadians are concerned about Chinese election interference amongst other countries who uh, who do this kind of thing. I mean, listen, we have a relatively open democratic voting process. So if you stare at it and think, I wonder what the vulnerabilities are and how we could game the system a bit for our to our advantage. And it's not just foreign countries doing this. I mean, all kinds of people look at it that way, right? Uh, but when we have evidence, we think, of, of foreign interference in our electoral process, I mean, you need to do something about it, right? So the government now for weeks have been kind of singing from the same songbook saying, listen, the checks and balances are in place. We have this under control. We're as concerned as you are, but don't worry about it. We can't really talk about it. It's a national security issue. Again today, as the NDP and the Bloc Québécois have been calling for a national, for a public inquiry into this, again today, um, the Prime Minister was sort of <laughs> saying he's not going to do it. He did say, though, as was mentioned earlier, um, that we should be looking at when to notify Canadians about potential interference, because right now the threshold is a little strange. Here's the Prime Minister today in B.C. We've seen uh, over the past number of uh, days and weeks uh, many Canadians very concerned about the issue of foreign interference into our democracies, into our election processes. We share that concern. Yeah, I guess. It doesn't seem like they're doing much about it. And also, of course, yesterday, a big budget in Alberta, mainly because there was one in BC too. Uh, but Budget Day in Alberta comes ahead of an election. It will be the only budget that Daniel Smith uh, will be uh, putting out there before she runs for election, a re-election, really, I suppose, uh, coming up in the spring. To help us with all of this, Dave Breckenridge is the editor of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun, host of the 10-3 podcast. Dave, thank you. Welcome back. Always happy to be here, Ben. So tell me about this. How is this interference, this election interference story landing in Alberta? Because I know the Liberals, Justin Trudeau certainly isn't the most popular politician there. Uh, but it feels like this one, I mean, it feels like right across the country that something is ringing hollow with the Liberal government's defense of this. Well, I mean, this this seems like it's an ongoing issue for the this prime minister, not just with election interference. The excuses or reasons that he tends to give whenever there's some kind of controversy always rings hollow. I think of the how Jody Wilson-Raybould oh, yeah. was dealt with relating to the SNC-Lavalin and, and just, you know, the prime minister's excuses or reasonings behind that was rung hollow. Um the, we have a prime minister here who I understand, and Canadians, I think, understand the notion that not everything that our intelligence operatives or intelligence services deal with is fit for public consumption. I think Canadians get that. 
But the idea that once this information is out in the public sphere, that the prime minister just doesn't seem to be able to say, you're right, this is a big problem. We're going to get to the bottom of it, I think is what (laughs) is ticking a lot of Canadians off. So we hear, you know, based on the reporting of, of the Globe and Mail and your global news colleagues, that there are real legitimate concerns that operatives of a foreign country tried to interfere in our elections for the benefit of foreign interests. That's not something we want to have happen in our country. We, we want to know that the sanctity of our elections is safe. And I'm not suggesting that the the last election result is invalid in any way, but we're not getting the assurances that people expect from their prime minister. No, I, I think part of the problem here, and I agree with you, part of the problem here is we don't want to cross over into that into that territory where we're calling into question the 2019 and 2021 elections because I think they were free and fair. But we do want to know what happened. I think people want to know what happened. And unfortunately, because of the way the security system works, uh, we're not going to get the information publicly. We didn't get it today at that committee hearing. We're certainly not getting it from the prime minister. Um, the only thing I can think of, and this is where nature loves a vacuum, right? or abhors a vacuum, I suppose, (laughs) is that by not calling the inquiry, and I'm thinking back to the sponsorship scandal and so on, by not calling an inquiry, people are starting to wonder, well, wait a second. Is that because you don't want people digging around in this because they're going to dig up some unpleasant stuff? Well, I think that's the main problem here, right, is, you know, what would a public inquiry into foreign election interference look at? Because, again, we can't necessarily have classified information being tossed about in the public sphere. I think a lot of Canadians get that. So what does an inquiry into this look at? It would ultimately, I think, have to look at how the federal government and the prime minister's office handled this intelligence and and whether they're doing anything about it, whether they dealt, you know, if they were warned about candidates who may have been uh, aided by a foreign entity with, I don't know, some kind of quid pro quo. I, I, don't, I don't know what another country is getting out of all of this, but how the party dealt with any of these candidates and whether they knew about foreign influence and whether they still let them run, that's the kind of stuff that can really bring down a government. And I think the prime minister, obviously, you know, we're, we're two years into his, his contract, his deal with the NDP to help prop him up on supply matters until 2025. But this is the kind of thing where if it got really bad, the NDP, I could see easily saying, oh, no, you know what? We're done with you. And so let's go to the polls. Yeah, I agree. I think this one is this one feels like the one. I mean, you can never tell in politics when one issue starts to dominate, even though it's not, you know, with all the other stuff going on out there. But this one feels like it has real legs. Speaking of elections, uh, there's one coming up where you are pretty soon. Yesterday came the uh, much anticipated pre-election budget. Here's uh, Alberta Finance Minister Travis Tays. This plan achieves the priorities of Albertans, which include ensuring the government lives within its means. Over the last four years, our relentless focus on investment attraction, job creation and diversification has secured our position as the economic engine of Canada. Frankly, the best news in Danielle Smith's first budget is that it could very well be her last one. Think about that. This could be the last budget where Albertans have to worry about their health and whether their government cares about it. This could be the last budget that puts corporate profits ahead of working families. There you go, Travis Taves, and then the leader of the opposition, uh, Rachel Notley, there as well. What a what a what a surplus, Dave. I mean, going into an election with a with a war chip with a surplus like that, wow! It, it must. It, what did you think of the budget 
writ large and how much of an advantage does the UCP have now because of it? Well, I mean, it, it is interesting. It, like there are some people to listen to the NDP talk. It's it's like this is a reckless budget on the part of the UCP, but also they don't care about your health care or your education. And also, if we were in government, we would spend more money. Um, <laughs> so, That's I quite mean, the magic is, trick. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a budget that I, I, I think a lot of people who, who may look at a politician like Daniel Smith and her and her small government leanings and the UCP government and say, is this a conservative budget? You're spending nearly 70 billion dollars and you have revenues of 70 of just over 70 billion dollars and you have a two point three billion dollar surplus. It is, the I think, the best that they could do with a pre-election budget where we don't have, you know, oil isn't in the tank, but it's not, the price of oil isn't sky high. And you can really, in Alberta, you know, it's a longstanding joke. You, you know, we're, we're kind of on this oil roller coaster and you can only really spend as much as you can estimate well the price of oil. And so you can't, you can't overestimate the price of oil and then throw around all sorts of pre-election goodies. And at the same time, you can't underestimate the price of oil because then you don't have a budget to spend. So we're seeing, you know, Health is getting a 4% increase. Education is getting a 5% increase. They're, they're investing in areas that I think people are concerned about. And the NDP may be right to argue it's too little too late after the last few years where restraint has been the, the order of the day in Alberta. But I, I feel like this is a budget the UCP can at least feel somewhat good about heading into the election. There's nothing really like horrific here. It's not a scary austerity budget, and it's not a, a free-spending buy-your-vote budget. I, I don't know whose votes they're buying with this, other than people who might be worried about health and education, which isn't a bad thing. You, you know, we want the government investing in those key areas. It feels like after some shaky first months, though, that uh, Daniel Smith and the UCP have, have steadied the ship a bit, though, at least from the outside, that's what it looks like. Yeah, it, it, it seems that way, and there's, you know, there, I know today that the, the House leader for the UCP kind of telegraphed some of the stuff that they're going to bring forward in this spring sitting of the legislature. And there was some talk about, you know, they're not going to really deal with the, the Sovereignty Act, which has been a controversial piece of legislation here. And they're not going to deal with that kind of full bore, but they're going to be looking at potential legislation around, you know, making it illegal for federal officers to go on a private property without permission like some of these weird alberta property rights type issues that that seem to be kind of niche here um yeah, but overall but 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 looking at the budget itself it's not really a, a niche right-wing ucp base kind of agenda i mean yeah sure there's there's funding for private and independent schools and stuff that may tick off a lot of people on the left but there's also again investments in health and education that i think even the the edmonton public school board chair said on tuesday late tuesday afternoon is like where was all this money the last three years like obviously they're happy to be getting something but they're wondering you know why weren't we getting this all along Hey, Brickenridge, editor of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun and host of the 10-3 podcast is with us this half hour. We're talking about uh, all sorts of stuff. Dave, I understand your emergency alert system in Alberta went a little haywire t- today. What happened? Well, I mean, there's there's nothing people hate more than their smartphones making noise and let alone making really loud noise, let alone nine times in a row. Nine. Right? So, nine. <laughs> nine. Nine times. And we can get in. So, so you know, the, 
everyone knows that there are these public alert systems that go out. You know, when you and I were growing up, it'd be in the middle of a TV show. You'd get this horrific noise coming out of your TV. And, and essentially the warning would be if this had been an actual emergency, you'd be dead right now. Um, <laughs> so now back to Scooby-Doo. Yeah, I remember those. I remember those. Well yeah, for so sure. like now you get them on on your phones and and. And, you know, I, I have all notifications. I, my, my phone tell, tells me visually when someone is emailing me or calling me, but my phone doesn't make any noise. So I, I did not get an emergency. I'll, I'll probably be one of those people who dies in a real emergency. Um, I, so, I, <laughs> so my phone just stopped working. Like, it interrupts everything you're doing on your phone. And, <laughs> and these things are an annoyance, right? Everyone's phone, a couple times a year, the federal emergency alert system goes off in May and November and Alberta's is testing in, in advance of wildfire season, as we all know, like we're prone to those kind of things out here. Um, and, and so they want to make sure the system is working all well and good. And so it went off once and then be- between essentially one fifty-five and two Oh one PM, it went off seven times or no, it went off seven times. Forgive me. It went off seven times at one fifty-five, and then twice more at two Oh one this afternoon. Which is, that's, I, that's I mean, I guess we know what's working now. Yeah. What? What? Do we know what happened? I think it was something wrong with the with someone forgot to turn off turn off. It's, well, it's automated, right? Is that right? Well, they're they're looking into it. I mean, the public safety and emergency services minister of Alberta, Mike Ellis, he told he told my colleagues at, at the Journal that um, the department's still investigating what caused what they're calling a glitch, and he said, Mike Ellis said, the only thing I can say is that is that you know this is not one of our normal tests. They're transitioning to a national alerting system. Um, in a further statement, he said, they're exactly why we conduct testing on the alert system. We need to ensure it's working. He added that the disruption was a bit of an annoyance. And I don't know, if you're on Twitter still, if you haven't defected to Mastodon in, in the wake of, of Elon Musk's takeover of the company, you got a lot of humor out of it today. And there was a lot, a lot of humor on it. Yeah, yeah, I saw what was this? I'm pretending someone rage quit their government job today by sending out emergency alerts time after time yeah. after time. I mean, I, I got I remember being in in Jasper um, right right before the heat dome, actually right right around that time of July of a couple of years back, and getting one because there had been a wildfire nearby. And they really do uh, they really do warn you if if it's important. But well, yeah, you're right, people. There's been all kinds of complaints about you know Amber alerts in the middle of the night, which I think is a bit facile, but this mm-hmm. one getting it nine times in the middle of the middle of the day. Anyway, I because, guess it works. Especially if you're if you're around if you're in a public place around everybody else with a smartphone, the noise just must have been crazy to like a food court at a mall to have all of these cell phones going off nine times in seven minutes just would have been so annoying. You know, I, <laughs> I I'm guess, all for yeah. convenience and security and stuff, but I hate being annoyed. Yeah, and you're right. It is a very, very uh, alerting, much like it should be. It does, it does certainly catch your attention. And nine times in a row. Well, I guess they'll figure out what went wrong and fix it. But at least we know the alerts work. Uh, yeah. But you always worry sometimes that if people incidents like this, people sort of it is, it is a bit like the boy who cried wolf, right? Like the next time around, maybe you don't look at it, right? Or maybe you know, I, I think you do anyway. But that's what you worry about. I, I mean, I think the government does a good job of, of telegraphing to people, we're doing testing. There's going to be, at, on this day, at this time, you're going to get an alert. And so hopefully, if they're paying attention to those warnings that you're going to get a test alert 
on that specific day. If it goes off another time, you realize, well, this isn't what I was told I was going to get one. I should pay attention to what's on here. That's the hope. That's the hope. Speaking of uh, speaking of your phone, have you have you gotten rid of TikTok yet? <laughs> I still have it on I, mine. I never got on the TikTok bandwagon. I you know never. It's, it's a joke that I see on Instagram where you know I I'm not on TikTok. I watch I watch videos two weeks later on on Instagram reels like a real adult. Uh, <laughs> no, I you know I <laughs> I'm still I'm not a video I'm not a video guy. I don't like. I, I love filmmaking. You know I love the, the creativity that goes into these things. I don't get on with dance crazes. I'm not so TikTok was never something that was really my bag, and and I, so I never got on on it. And then there was all these talk about well, who controls TikTok because it's run by someone who's really close to the Chinese military or something. And so I was like, oh, I don't want this on my phone. Well, the governments are well, finally it, catching up with me for once. It looks like every every government in the country sort of jumped on this bandwagon as fast as they can. It's it's odd because you don't often see the governments of Saskatchewan, Alberta, BC, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and Ottawa all agree on something in a matter of minutes. And this one, they seem to have all agreed on very quickly. Well, it, it's one of those it's one of those areas where you think, you know, who within government would need to have an app like TikTok on their phone? I know that politicians True like enough. Jagmeet Singh really use TikTok to kind of raise his profile as NDP leader. But beyond that, like it's our comm staff using it. And is government messaging really, is TikTok a really good way to get out government messaging? Maybe it is. Maybe I'm showing my slightly advanced age. That I don't know you if could, this is the best use of government communications resources to have people doing silly videos on on a phone app. So the fact that they're that they're all be, being banned from having it on their phone that's probably, in my view, a good thing. Maybe focus your energies elsewhere. Better safe than sorry, I'd say. Uh, we have the crash test dummies on in the next hour. They, I really like the crash test dummies. Any favorite tracks of theirs from back in your? Uh, were those your college days? Or are you are you younger than that? Aren't you? <laughs> I, I I mean they they were they became big when I was in junior high. And so I, you know, right. I remember, um, I can't even remember the name of the song. It was all about mm-hmm. Superman oh, never okay. made any money. Oh, Superman. Saving the word. From, yeah. 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 That's yeah. a good Superman song. Yeah. Superman song and, and Peter Pumpkinhead. And it, it's interesting. Like they, they're, a, they're a group that they got enough notoriety in Canada and they, the interesting songwriting and kind of quirky, but you also like, it was one of those things like, how did they like what was it that kind of caught people's attention because they don't seem like a band based on their style of music and their approach to songwriting that could have would have caught kind of broader attention and that's not a knock again that they're like good songwriting great musicians and it was just one of those things like i was happy to kind yeah. of as a canadian watching them get some success south of the border due to some like tv and movie tie-ins they did just seem like an odd fit but it was you know a great little canadian success story Dave Breckenridge, as always, thank you. Thank you. So something magical is happening in the skies tonight. Two of the brightest planets are coming together. If you're looking towards the west, you will be able to see two bright stars in the sky. Those are actually tonight, with just a moon between them, Jupiter and Venus. And they've been getting closer and closer together every night tonight they're as close as they're going to be for at least another decade so it's important and i always get asked this west look west that's what i've been told we'll get into this too uh we'll get some more details for you but it's they're hard to miss they're bright and you don't need 
a lot of equipment to see them. You can basically look up and see them if you have binoculars, even better. Um, what's remarkable about this is, of course, the planets are hundreds of millions of kilometers apart. Uh, but for sky watchers, this is a great evening. They've been steadily approaching over the last several weeks. And tonight, they peak Jupiter and Venus, just a moon's length between them, more or less. Uh, Venus, of course, is referred to as the evening star or morning star because it's bright. Um, but Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system, is going to be just above and to the left of it. So it's it's really a magical night if you're a bit of a stargazer. And Paul Delaney, who is more than that, is a professor emeritus with York University's Department of Physics and Astronomy. And he joins us now from Scottsdale in Arizona. Uh, professor Delaney, thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Ben. So this is always an interesting time for uh, stargazers or planet gazers as it is. Uh, what's going on in the skies tonight? Well, we've got a nice little conjunction going on between the two brightest planets in our solar system, Venus and Jupiter. And of course, the really good thing about that is, well, a couple of good things. One, they are really bright, so they're very hard to miss. And it's early in the evening. You don't have to get up at three o'clock in the morning or just before sunrise. This is an event that is happening immediately after sun. Uh, the sun has set everywhere on the planet so that's a really broad uh, appeal for everybody and you're not going to see it for another 10 years so i definitely would recommend that you get out and have a look at these two bright signal objects over there in the western sky they really are bright western sky right you can't miss them i guess they'll be bright enough that you'll you'll sort of as long as the skies are clear you'll be able to see them Absolutely. Yeah, of course, cloud is a bit of a problem. <laughs> no question about that. But as long as you've got a Western horizon that is reasonably cloud free, let the sun go down. And then probably within about 10, 15 minutes, Venus will become clearly visible. It will be slightly closer to the horizon than Jupiter. It will be uh, visible a few minutes after Venus. I mean, it depends on your visual acuity. Some people can actually see Venus during the day. I can't. Uh, but uh, you know, you'll be able to see it nice and clear over there on the western horizon and as i said you know they are really bright and they're only separated by about one moon diameter the moon's nowhere near but if you think about and have a look straight up actually you'll be able to see the moon that is the apparent separation between venus and jupiter on march 1st which is remarkable considering they are quite far apart right Oh, absolutely. In fact, they're, they're something like 700 million kilometers apart from each other. They're in completely different parts of the solar system, but it's what I call celestial mechanics. These planets are orbiting the sun, as is the Earth, and as a consequence, periodically, about once a decade, Venus and Jupiter, from our perspective, line up so that we're looking past Venus into the outer solar system, and over the next few days, you'll see these two planets begin to separate again. So they've been closing in on each other for the last you know, several weeks. And for the coming weeks, they are going to separate again. Tonight, March 1st, it is when they will be closest together. For people who are interested in this as well, I, I've been I've been reading that it's it's not bad to look at them again, say tomorrow night, because uh, mm. you'll start to see them moving apart, as you were mentioning. That's exactly right. It's it's celestial mechanics. It, it really is the way the uh, the solar system is operating, and you can see them 
clearly moving apart. I mean, if you wait till uh, twilight ends, you'll be able to compare their positions with respect to the background stars. The stars are essentially not moving, but the planets will move with respect to those stars. So there's lots of things that you can look at here. And if you've got a good pair of binoculars, bring them out because Jupiter has four very bright satellites orbiting around it, what we call the Galilean satellites. And on March 1st, three of them are going to be clearly visible along with Jupiter and Venus in the same binocular field of view. So that that makes it just that little bit more special. Yeah, I, and you don't need powerful equipment for this one, right? You don't need to be, uh, you don't need to have access to something super high tech to be no, able to appreciate these ones. No, absolutely not. Jupiter and Venus are clearly visible to the unaided eye. Not a problem there at all. But if you do want to try and chase down a little bit more detail, as I said, the Galilean satellites, binoculars will show that. And if you do have a telescope, you'll be able to pull out the weather patterns on Jupiter, the cloud tops, the various striations on Jupiter. And literally with just a very gentle tweak of your field of view, there will be Venus. I mean, that's pretty neat too. That is. The ability to see Jupiter that way and its moons uh, is remarkable. Absolutely. The, the solar system is full of wonderful objects to look at. Venus, when all is said and done, is actually a fairly boring object because it's got this perennial cloud cover, which means it reflects sunlight away so effectively that there is no detail. It's just a featureless white smear. It does go through phases like the moon goes through phases, and it's actually going into its crescent phase at the moment, but you'll be hard pressed to see that unless you've got some you know, decent telescopic equipment. But the other planets in our solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, its ring system, of course, Mars, they're really wonderful objects to look at. And chasing them down in the night sky is one of the first things that any amateur astronomer likes to do. Paul Delaney is with us this half hour. He is an emeritus professor with York University's Department of Physics and Astronomy. We're talking about uh, some of the great things you can see in the night sky tonight in particular. Uh, Jupiter and Venus will be getting very close. Uh, they've been getting closer and closer together as as it functions. They are at their closest together tonight, so you can actually see both of them, which is something fantastic. It only happens about once a decade, as uh, Paul was pointing out. Uh, some other alignments coming up a little later in the month, I believe, uh, closer to March 20. 26th, I was reading. There is always something happening in the sky. The moon goes from one part of the sky to the other and gets close to the different planets. So uh, a few days ago, for example, it was very close to the planet Mars. Later in the month, it will again be very close to the planet Venus. Uh, so those types of conjunctions, because the moon moves quite quickly across the sky, are always neat to see what we call sort of alignments and conjunctions. As easy to see as, as tonight? Well, the moon is always hard to miss, of course. In fact, Indeed. most astronomers don't like to look at the moon because it is so darn bright. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Mars is always quite bright in the sky. It'll be easy to see. And as we've said, Venus is very bright as well. So the moon uh, later this month will be passing relatively close by both of those planets. But it's, it's, of course, not just the moon and the, and the planets that are the, the show at this time of the year. Orion, the constellation, arguably one of the easiest to identify constellations in the night sky, is high overhead, is up pretty well all night. If you've got, again, binoculars, you, know, you can focus in on the Orion Nebula, a stellar nursery, which is in the sort of Orion. It's really one of my favourite times of the year, March, because the nights aren't too cold, yet the bright winter stars are high overhead. 
One of the things I found fascinating too is if, say, you do have cloud cover, there's so many organizations out there streaming this stuff. So you can actually, if if you don't have the benefits because of weather in your own area of the country, uh, you can actually log on. It's not quite the same, but you can actually log on to say, you know, YouTube or online and see these things being streamed live by different organizations. Absolutely. Around the world so that you can always avoid sunlight. And there's some, it's dark somewhere always, right? <laughs> uh, so you can have telescopes streaming activities. The York University's observatory, the Allen I. Carswell Observatory, in fact, streams every Wednesday night at 7.30 local time. So that's 7.30 Eastern time. We've got a nice one meter telescope there. And whatever happens to be interesting in the night sky, and I would argue there's always something interesting, uh, the telescope is tuned to it and the students who are driving the telescope having a terrific time are always giving lots of commentary and of course because it is on a youtube streaming channel you have the opportunity to ask questions so every every wednesday night it's quite local 7 30 eastern time from uh, the alan i caswell observatory and you could get on and ask questions too if you're curious right of, of students i imagine there are people there who uh, who can answer these for you in real time uh, absolutely. The, the students are the heart and soul of the operation, but uh, Professor uh, Elena Hyde is always lurking in the background. She's the director of the observatory. So if the students get stumped, she jumps in and sorts things out. But very rarely do they get stumped. They love their astronomy. They love their telescope. And the questions that come are really often really neat. So again, for tonight, if people are curious, uh, Western Sky, and you're going to see Jupiter and Venus uh, as close together as you're going to see them for another decade or so, because it's it's rare, but not that rare. That's exactly right. Because Venus moves around the sun every 225 days, it tries to get itself into alignment with other planets on a regular basis. Jupiter, as we've said, is the second brightest planet in the solar system, orbits around every 12 years. So you end up with this nice pairing about once a decade. It's not always as close as tonight. Sometimes it's only a few degrees, so several lunar diameters apart. But on other occasions, they can get very, very close. You might recall, Ben, about uh, two years ago, Jupiter and Saturn got so close that they were almost indistinguishable from each other. That's how close they got to much, much closer than much closer than a half moon's diameter. That's right, because we're going to have about a moon's diameter between the two of them, right, tonight? That's exactly right. Yep. You're in Arizona. Uh, clear skies there, big skies there. Are you going to you're going to head out? I have been watching the the show for the last several nights. Tonight, believe it or not, they are forecasting cloud. Oh, but no. tomorrow, yeah, but tomorrow night it's nice and clear. So if I miss tonight, get it tomorrow night. Saw it last night. I'm a happy camper. Yeah, I suppose that applies to everyone as well. Just because we can't see it on the on the brightest night doesn't mean, or on you know maybe the best night we could call it. Uh, there's no reason not to have a look up sometime a little later this week as well. Absolutely. Always keep an eye on the skies. If you're outside, you have the opportunity to see things. There's been some really nice auroral activity uh, in northern Canada over yes. the last week, some very spectacular activity. Whether or not it will reach as far south as Victoria or uh, you know, down to Toronto, that remains to be seen. But if you're outside, you stand a chance of being able to see it. Yeah, the northern lights have been remarkable. Why is that? Do they just shift from year to year? Is it? Uh, it's a good, I've always wondered. The aurora arise from the interaction of the Earth's magnetic field with streaming particles from the sun, what we call the solar wind. But the solar wind 
periodically gets enhanced, what we call coronal mass ejections, a huge storm of material sweeping from the sun out throughout the solar system. This goes through cycles. The sun has a, an activity cycle of about 11 years. It was at solar minimum at the end of 2019. And by 2025, we will reach the peak of the solar cycle, which means the sun's activity is steadily increasing. What that means for us here on Earth, apart from really good science, is this stream of charged particles interacts with the Earth's magnetic field, gets pulled into the atmosphere, collides with the various gases in our atmosphere, and gives rise to these auroral discharges. So the more active the sun is, the greater is the auroral activity. And literally, if you can have a very, very strong flare, like we had last week, what we call an X-class flare, then that can really deposit a lot of particulate radiation in our atmosphere. And that, while it's not dangerous to you and me, can generate terrific light shows that stretch from the normal areas around the poles down towards the equatorial regions. Paul Delaney, thank you so much. You're welcome, Ben.